Hello and welcome to the King's Fund podcast, where we explore the big issues and ideas in health and care. I'm Jo Vigor, Assistant Director of Leadership and Organisational Development here at the Fund. And for our final episode of the year, as we head into Christmas and the new year, I'm thrilled to be joined by a fantastic and special guest. My guest today is someone whose career to date has spanned a number of different areas, population health, public health, quality improvement, clinical engagement and leadership, to name just a few. And this person is Dr. Dominique Allwood, Chief Medical Officer at UCL Partners and Director of Population Health at Imperial College Healthcare NHS Trust. So welcome, Dom. What a list of accolades and titles there. So welcome to the King's Fund podcast. We're getting in the mood today wearing Christmas hats and jumpers and trying to stay out of the snow because it's pretty chilly down here in the south. Well, thanks, Joe. Thank you so much for having me. It's lovely to be here with you and I'm delighted to be joining you for the festive edition. Dom, your CV is really impressive. Can you start by giving our listeners a flavour of your career so far? And if you were to summarise, what's been the most important steps in that journey? Gosh, there's so many things. I'll need to pull up the LinkedIn profile just to re-remember all the stuff. And I, I hope you're not just about to appear through some door with a book that says this is your life. But um, yeah, so yeah, thank you. I, I think the the things that I've really enjoyed about my career so far has been the variety and I am somebody who really enjoys spanning boundaries, organisations, issues, people, colleagues, teams. So I've been really privileged to be able to do that in many of the roles that I've had. I guess there's been a few formative things that have really um, shaped uh, where I've kind of got to and they start sort of early on in my career. So one of the things was really at school deciding what to do when you uh, grow up I remember being unclear about what I wanted to do I knew I wanted to go to university but at my school they had not not everyone went to university and they definitely hadn't had many people that uh, went to be doctors Uh, but I had someone notice me it was a a sixth form um, head who noticed in me I guess a talents and ability and potential to be able to go and do that and suggested that I think about medicine and up until that point I thought I'd wanted to do a career in designing so I'd done graphic design work experience but I was also doing uh, science A-levels and she noticed in me something I think that was really helpful and and gave me lots of mentoring around how I might apply for medicine and that, I, I guess that's the first time I really had somebody who took an interest in my, me and my life and and helped provide me with some guidance and that has shaped my interest in mentoring others um, definitely going forwards and as I progressed through and into clinical training I realised that I loved the practice of medicine, but was less interested in some of the clinical aspects of it and more about how we change services to help people. And that has been why I've gone into kind of quality improvement and public health. One of the other big things that shaped me was the the Darcy Fellowship in Clinical Leadership. At that point when I did it, it was run by the King's Fund. I was selected to do a leadership fellowship and I found it completely transformational. There were so many things about that that were amazing, but one of them was understanding this question about what's it like to be on the receiving end of me thinking about what's my role as a leader with others and until that point I hadn't really considered that other people are different and work differently and have different preferences and experiences and I really enjoyed learning about things like personality types and how you build teams and how you lead with others and so I guess the experiences of actually being mentored and and understanding leadership have been really important 
I love the messages about the importance of mentorship, especially from a young age as well, because many, many people don't get that. So it's great that you're taking that experience on and and, um, really keen in your mentorship of others as well. You've done so much in your career. What has that journey really been like? Because you've achieved a lot, but if you look back, are there some things you've had to put on the back burner or challenges you've had to face along the way? Uh, Yeah, so I guess there's a a few things in that to unpack. One of them is a sense of confusion early on about my own personal identity for, you know, growing up as a person of um, mixed ethnicity background. I'm half Indian, part Greek. I grew up in a fairly, I guess, white area of Essex and didn't really understand what it meant to have different coloured skin and look different to other children. And that sense of feeling like you're not sure how you belong. And I never really feel felt like I was completely comfortable in my skin, so to speak, until reaching university where I met so many different people with um, huge amounts of diversity of all different types. But I guess that has really shaped my interest in understanding what it's like to um, have experiences through different lenses that include ethnicity and and gender. Um, And I'm somebody who I'm blessed with, um, I guess some people would say good genes. So I I think I look probably somewhat younger than I am. I hope that that's something that will stay with me. But it's also a a curse as well as a blessing because you can turn up looking young and female into rooms and there are stereotypes around people. And for many, many times that I've been in meetings, I've had people say to me, oh, tea with two sugars, love, you know, the post-its are over there if you're going to take the notes, thinking I've turned up to do the administration of the meeting. And it's actually, I'm here to chair, you know, this is my role. I'm uh, somebody who's in charge here or senior in leadership. So I guess the, the gender has played out for me somewhat as well. And it's been many experiences that have really shaped um, who I am. One of them was living and working in New Zealand for a few months and really learning much more about what it's like to have health disparities and see things through the perspective of different populations including their indigenous populations. so a lot of experiences have driven me to really think about um, inequalities and that partly steered me into wanting to take on public health work but also through the lenses of quality improvement thinking about what does equity mean yeah lots of lots of things have shaped me my childhood my experience at school university the different places that I have worked to help me really understand how to sort of land and place myself in in the work world and I don't think you you get taught that much about that when you're kind of going through your life and so it has definitely been a lot of experiences that I've learned as I've gone and um, public health has been an amazing specialty and profession to learn a lot about um, some of those things as well. What advice would you give to young people or young women coming through the health and care system in leadership roles? Your Your point about two sugars love is an experience I've had myself as we've gone through but what 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 advice one piece of advice would you give to people that are experiencing some of those uh, inclusion challenges I think one of the things that I've done is struggled with how much to sort of mention these things when you're junior in your career you often wonder how much to speak up speak out the worry that the impact that might have on being sort of known as a troublemaker or trying to be sort of confrontational but I've got a personality type that that likes to not have conflict all the time but I'm the opposite of let sleeping dogs lie I like to process things I like to have things out in the open and so I had some mentoring once about the fact that you don't have to always 
call things out in a way that sort of is threatening to people. You can do what I I learned, which is about call it in. So you can say something to somebody without having to do it necessarily publicly or in a confronting way. But I have wanted to make a point to people when that happens about the impact that it's had or whether they've realised. Because I think if you do leave things unchallenged, people will carry on with often types of behaviours that we do need to say something about. So um, seeing it as feedback in a constructive, polite, kind way, I think is really important. Thank you. No, thank you. Some great, great advice to some of our listeners there. So I just want us to move on to your experiences during COVID, during the pandemic, some of which we're still going through. You were seconded twice to the Nightingale Hospital in London. The first part you led a quality improvement project capturing staff feedback from the front line. And your second stint, you went in as medical director. Can you tell us a bit about those experiences and the impact it's had on you? I think the first thing is that, that, that I guess it felt like a lot of things that I'd done up until that point had really helped prepare me for doing that. And that sounds strange because who thinks about being ready for a pandemic before it arrives? But, you know, the fact that I've done public health training we learned a lot about emergency preparedness I've done various different leadership programs and learned about different styles of leadership which include you know command and control and where that's valuable and I've worked a lot in quality improvement and learned how you can use those skill sets in a in a way that helps to rapidly test and change and learn so in many ways this collection of skills and experiences I've had I think really helped me to contribute during the pandemic so I had two roles one was associate medical director in my um, hospital trust where I led some large and quite rapid things that included setting up a big staff health and well-being helpline and setting up this ethical decision making support service to support colleagues who were having to undertake really difficult decisions but I guess this call to go and help at the Nightingale was one that I'll never forget and I felt a real privilege to be able to go and serve and do that. And as you said, I, I was able to both work in a quality improvement and learning role. And then the second time round, unfortunately, we had a second time round. But for someone who's, who prepares, trains and, and improves, the second opportunity is often the one that you relish more because you've had a chance to hone what you're doing. And I was able to take all of that learning from the first Nightingale and implement it really fast into the second one. And, you know, had a lot of help and learning through working with military colleagues and others who were able to come back and help a second time. But it was, I guess, a chance to really exercise my clinical and medical leadership skills. Also, I was really keen to try and capture and evaluate that impact. So we did a lot of work, particularly the second time, to think about what was the impact as an anchor institution of the Nightingale working there, you know, giving jobs to local people, really understanding what's been the quality and learning impact of trying to set up a service in a field setting and manage through a crisis and how did we learn what outcomes patient and staff experience we had and how that compared to other settings during the pandemic. So I have this kind of critical evaluative uh, lens on things too. So in many ways, it was a, a, an amazing, uh, whilst difficult experience to be able to put a lot of skills and knowledge into practice very quickly. Thank you. I mean, it just sounds, like you said, as tragic as the, the whole context was around this, the way that you all pulled together, that you were using people from across different sectors, including the military, to get it set up and run, just sounded like a fantastic opportunity and to take that learning elsewhere. What would be your one leadership takeaway from that experience? 
I think the biggest thing that I saw which felt important was and it's been well documented but I, I definitely agree is is the importance of like clarity of mission and people felt like they really understood what they needed to do and get on with I think in many settings it wasn't just at Nightingale but you get a lot of the sort of noise out the way and the pebbles in the shoes out the way and people can really focus and deliver amazing things when they um, you know are focused on what needs to happen and I think in the current system that we have and the current context there's so many distractions money and you know lack of workforce and other things that just help to distract people away from the kind of core purpose of what we need to be doing to get on with things. And during COVID, leadership really helped to drown out a lot of that noise. And so I think there's a real uh, provocation on to leaders at the moment to think about how do they provide that clarity of mission and purpose when there is so much going on around us? And, and are we all aligned on what that is? And for many people, that will be getting patients out through the system more quickly. For others, it will be about how do we really try and prevent them from getting there in the first place. But are people clear on what the mission is and how our leaders doing something to help people really um, ensure that they are laser focused on that mission? I couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. Very wise words. I'll just move on to the connection and the thread through your work around health inequalities. You've mentioned earlier on in um, this conversation that you're really, really keen and and central to you as a person, the concepts of fairness and equity. And when we reflect on all the different roles you've held through your career, it often looks like there's a focus on health inequalities. I mean, is that right? And and what inspired you to go into that direction and that focus um, in the first place? What was going on for you? I think one of the experiences that I had which made me think about variation, which is, of course, important in thinking about inequalities, was when I was a junior doctor working clinically. And I remember being the most senior clinical person in the emergency department in the resuscitation room. And we had a number of big, major issues with workforce over over that point. But we also had a number of uh, very sick patients that culminated at one time overnight. So we had road traffic accidents, a stabbing and a shooting. And I remember thinking, I don't feel like we've got enough resources to look after all these patients really well. And I don't know how to to deal with this. I don't know how you make choices about what you do when you can't do everything. And the fact is that some people will suffer. And often the people that suffer in situations where we are resource deplete is those who have less voice, less agency. And Many of those experiences that I saw about variation in care and why certain people get things and other people don't stem back to equity and inequalities. And it it made me start to think that I wanted to do more to start changing some of the causes of that rather than just patching up some of the effects that we saw as a result of those systems and issues. And I started to then learn much more about health inequalities and through you know, the work of many people like Sir Michael Marmot became very familiar with that work and decided that public health was the specialty that I wanted to go into to help understand and act on the things that cause uh, those inequalities. Coming full circle, I've had the absolute uh, privilege of just last month uh, releasing a paper that, uh, that Michael 
and I and another colleague wrote around equity and around this concept of anchor institutions where you think about what organisations can do to tackle health inequalities and equity through the work that they do. And so it's been amazing to work um, in that space for a number of years now. And, and it's taken me into this new new field for me, which over the last few years has been around anchor institutions. I think inequalities and equity can feel like such a big topic and particularly for those in the health service they think well how can I possibly tackle that through the way in which I'm working in the part of the system I'm working in and and this concept of the anchor institution about who you employ who you choose to work with in terms of your organizations that you partner with etc and how you work with your communities differently is a really important part of that story. With that work and with the um, research and conversations you've been having, what are the biggest challenges facing the health and care sector that threaten to hamper progress on reducing health inequalities from your perspective? I think that one of the biggest ones at the moment is this kind of urgent versus important. So we're getting Mm. very um, consumed with the things that are right in front of us at the moment around flow and resources, um, workforce shortages, which are all really important and and should uh, warrant our time and attention but many of the things that cause those require a lot more long-term and preventative thinking and when you're in the midst of that it's very difficult to pull yourself out of it but those will be the things that get us out of it so how do we take a long-term view but also a view that starts to be more system focused so the things that we might do in one part of the system may not give us the benefit immediately and there it might be in another part of the system and it might be further down the line. So how do we take an approach that is more long term and more system focused to help tackle these issues? And I think that is a real challenge at the moment for healthcare organisations and leaders. And that's where to put your energy from the sounds of things, from what you're saying there as well, where people should put their energy. How how do people get into some of those conversations about the urgent versus the important and, and an interest in joining ideas up across a system rather than purely in terms of what's in front of them? What What's the one or two things you would say to people? I think one of the ways in that I've, I've sort of seen has been helpful is actually uh, thinking about improvement, quality improvement. So many people will be learning that through their training in healthcare um, or the people that they're working with doing quality improvement projects. And they're they're likely to be things that lots of people have started learning skills in. But I guess it's about trying to expand that view. So if you think about trying to improve patient experience or access or did not attend rates in your particular clinic, there's many things that you could do to slightly expand that view. So starting to think about, well, what are some of the causes of why those things have gone on and how do we start to think more upstream or how do we expand our quality improvement view so that we start to think about the people who aren't showing up or the the gaps in the data of people we don't have. So starting to bring an equity lens in or when you're doing an improvement project, thinking about how do you bring sustainability in so that you start to think about what some of the bigger issues sort of health pieces are that start to move you into more of the prevention and social determinant space and there's lots of ways you can do that through kind of quality improvement method and a quality improvement lens and then in terms of sort of how to start thinking beyond your ward your clinic your team there's there's lots of connections to be made and I think starting to explore those through the organizations that you work in speaking to leaders both within those organizations but beyond those organizations and understanding how you can get involved in 
work that starts to span outside your usual sort of purview is really important. And there, and I guess the final thing would be probably getting some mentorship around that. If you're struggling to see how to do some of these things, mentors can be really helpful and powerful in helping to sort of showcase opportunities for you or open the doors for things. But I think that these pieces about starting to connect with people outside of your usual setting and starting to think a bit more in terms of how you might use some of your projects that you're working on, your improvement work, to start thinking a bit more in the lens of social determinants or prevention or equity or green feel like places to start. Thank you. And you recently wrote a fascinating opinion piece in the British Medical Journal about sustainability in the, in the NHS. Can you tell us a bit about how climate change is affecting people's health? And in your article, you argued that any efforts to tackle climate change must avoid further widening existing health inequalities. And it, is it possible to effectively combine these aims and find solutions that tackle both of these issues? So quite a big question there. Yeah, it's a huge question. So I guess just the piece on inequalities, it's well known, but perhaps not often talked about the fact that the environment often has an axis that seems to have uh, see the biggest impacts of climate change on those who are the most vulnerable in our population. So, for example, we see many of the impacts of climate change in some of the, the poorest countries around the world, and, and those people are the most affected and least resilient and able to cope with those impacts I guess though for many people they might sort of think well that all seems like yeah I understand that but we're living you know in the UK one of the most affluent countries in the world etc there are many examples of where health inequalities and climate intersect within the UK and one of those is air pollution so uh, you'll see many examples of where some of the poorest schools and the the poorest people live in in places that have the lowest air quality and have some of the worst health impacts as a result of that and that's really you know a problem that we all need to be thinking about addressing and indeed many organizations including healthcare are for example great ormond street has done a lot on clean air frameworks and has done a lot of advocacy work and working with the mayor across london on on these issues so i think there's a real role for healthcare professionals and healthcare organisations to both lobby and have advocacy roles. I guess for me what I was trying to do in the piece in the BMJ was to start to help people to think both how they might do things in a tangible way and also start to do things differently. So the innovation piece feels really important to me that there are many sectors out there beyond healthcare that have started to tackle the net zero challenge really well. What can we learn from them about how they're doing that and bring some of that learning and approaches into healthcare. The the focus of a lot of the work that I'm doing at UCL Partners, we've developed a climate collaborative with our with our provider organisations and, and UCL Partners is an academic health science partnership at innovation and, and focus on bringing sort of things in from discovery, research and uh, industry and innovation into practice quickly and evaluating that impact. So we're focusing on the three eyes of innovation, implementation and impact, really thinking about how we can add to this agenda along with uh, many others. What are the couple of the leadership principles that you think will be essential in delivering a sustainable NHS and a sustainable health and care system in the future? So I think one of them is definitely about collaboration. In the past, we've 
felt very competitive in the NHS and it's not surprising given the policy landscape that was about markets and competition and we've you know moved much more into a collaborative space and the, the advent of integration has really helped that integrated care systems a really powerful part of that but I guess often in some of our clinical spaces we still see people feeling like they're going to be having to fight over patients and activity or some sort of innovation that that can be you know I invented this here I'm the first one to have done that and I think people are moving away from that but what I've seen in the environmental works environmental sustainability and climate change is that there's a huge amount of potential to collaborate it serves no one well to be in competition to tackle climate change there can only be benefit from doing things in a collaborative space so I think it's really incumbent on leaders to do that to make sure that people feel like that they the imperative is to collaborate learn and share across pace and scale and the best leaders are really doing that I think the other thing is about being courageous um, and having courage to say this is a really important part of what we're going to focus on and then divert energy and attention and resource particularly when we feel so constrained in the system at the moment and we're so challenged operationally. If we think about what's the point of having healthy patients on a sick planet, it's not going to, you know, those two things just don't add up. And so some of these big challenges like sustainability, like equity, take a lot of courage from healthcare leaders to say, I'm going to focus on this really heavily. And that's what we need to do as organisations, as systems. So collaboration and courage I think the two things that I would point out as the key leadership behaviours in some of these big issues. Brilliant and I think uh, the King's Fund would be right behind you on those two as well Dominique. On that note I'm just going to move us on to our final question which is we're coming to the end of 2022 so if you had one thing you could leave behind in 22 and one thing you could take forward into the new year what would those be? Oh, okay. So I think I think mine might be a bit stolen from a, a good friend and colleague, uh, Bob Kleber, who talks about language. So the thing I'd like to leave behind is the language that's around some of our big issues at the moment. If you think about what they what this language really says about the problems, I don't think it serves us well. So things like flow, discharge, you know, those things just conjure up such horrible images around what we're trying to do. So I think language is really important in culture and culture change. So thinking differently about some of those issues and how we describe them, label them and tackle them would be um, one of the key things for me. And then I guess taking forwards, I talked a bit about mission and clarity about what we're here to do within healthcare. And I think that that word care is often missed off. We focus heavily on health and, you know, I'm a public health person and I, you know, that's in my title, but actually about care, caring for patients, caring with patients, caring for and about each other, caring for and about our planet. And I think this this notion of care, what, what did we come into healthcare to do? Why did many of us join the mission, so to speak, when we all decided to come and uh, be part of it? It was about care. And I think we need to bring that forwards into 2023 and leave behind flow and discharge. That sounds fantastic. Dominique, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a real pleasure and a real delight talking to you and just some fantastic insights into your career and what you're doing now and the importance of that work. Well, that's all we've got time for today. Thank you so much, Dominique, for joining me. You can find the show notes for this episode and all our previous episodes at www.kingsfund.org 
uk forward slash KF podcast. And you can get in touch with us via Twitter. Our account is at the King's Fund. This episode was edited by Bespoken Media. Thank you also to our podcast team for this episode, Beth Sutherland, Sarah Murphy and Jen Thorley. Don't forget to subscribe, share, rate and review this episode wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, thanks for listening. We hope you can have a relaxing holiday and new year and you can join us for our next podcast in 2023.